The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. This is a narrated Puritan portion of the Man of God Network. The Man of God Network is a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. In my hand is a book called Pastoral Theology by Thomas Murphy, which came out in the year 1877. There's really two only important things to discuss about Thomas Murphy before I read this. One is that he was a student of Archibald Alexander, and a lot of his pastoral theology came from the notes that he took sitting at the feet of the first professor of Princeton Theological Seminary. The other is that this book is a favorite of Albert Martin, who quoted it many times in his own pastoral theology course. The section I want to preach for the Men of God Network is called The Manner of Preaching or the Pastor in His Pulpit. It's this section on deep earnestness that I think is worth hearing. The Manner of a Pastor's Preaching. Thomas Murphy says, Very much depends upon this. It should be made a careful and incessant study by every minister. The following reflections may assist in attaining to higher proficiency in an art which is the most sacred and exalted. 1. Deep earnestness. Every motive arising from his office, his trust, his character, and his hope of success demands of the pastor that he should be fully in earnest in that which is his greatest work. He cannot preach aright in any other way. It is not meant that there must necessarily be much noise in the pulpit. Very often the highest emotion will subdue and so prevent noise. But what is meant is that in the preaching the heart should be enlisted. The whole heart. The heart inflamed by a sense of the importance of the subject. The heart filled with the strongest desire of effecting the objects for which the gospel is preached. This earnestness cannot be assumed or counterfeited. It must be genuine. It must spring from a sympathy with God and souls which has been produced by the Holy Ghost. And in every sermon, the first care of the preacher should be to get his heart inflamed with it. He should pray and read the word and meditate until it is reached. It is a fundamental preparation for faithful and successful preaching. What earnestness do we find characterizing the preachers of the New Testament? They were in earnest when in one place we hear them crying, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Paul was in earnest when he could exhort, saying, Therefore watch and remember, that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Apollos was in earnest. Since we read of him, this man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. These and other cases form a model which should be imitated. The slumbering conscience of unrenewed men demands the greatest fervency in the preacher. 
There is a terrible insensibility about spiritual and eternal things, which it often seems as if no motives could penetrate, and a stupor is found everywhere. Now, it is true that the Holy Ghost alone can break through this obstacle and arouse the heart to its danger and refuge, but it is also true that the Holy Ghost ordinarily works by means, and that by the means that are naturally the best adapted to accomplish the desired end. And what's so likely to awaken the slumbering conscience as a preaching which flows from an ardent heart? What in fact has proved so effective is this divinely appointed agency. The preacher then should apply his whole soul to awaken men. He should not be afraid of enthusiasm and a work so deeply important and so hard to be accomplished. If men see him awaken in earnest and perseveringly so, they must be affected. If they see him indifferent, they will sleep the sounder. How is it possible to preach of the awful realities of heaven and hell, of the soul in the everlasting ages, and of the death of Christ for the salvation of the lost without the deepest emotion? Hell is a terrible reality. The prospect of its unutterable anguish, of its eternal torments, is dreadful. Then the thought that all the unconverted are posting on steadily and surely to its woes is appalling. But it might be escaped through the blood of the Son of God, and then would come a heaven of indescribable bliss and everlasting glory. Can we think of these things and not be overwhelmed at the thought? Can we speak of them without our hearts and words burning with the very deepest feeling? Can we preach of them in any other tone than that of the devoted Robert Murray McChain? He said, quote, Souls are perishing every day, and our own entrance into eternity cannot be far distant. Let us, like Mary, do what we can, and no doubt God will bless it and reward us openly. But an inch of time remains, and the eternal ages roll on forever. An inch on which we stand and preach the way of salvation to the perishing world. Equally fervent was the purpose of Cecil. Hell is before me, and thousands of souls shut up there in everlasting agonies. Jesus Christ stands forth to save men from rushing into this bottomless abyss. He sends me to proclaim his ability and his love. I want no fourth idea. Every fourth idea is contemptible. Every fourth idea is a grand impertinence, end quote. To preach in a cold, unfilling manner. To preach without earnestness is sinful. It shows in the preacher a heart that is hard. It reveals an amount of selfishness or thoughtlessness or levity, or all of them combined it ought to humble and alarm. The existence of such a state of mind should set us to inquire most anxiously how it is with our own souls. It should drive us quickly to the cross of Christ for pardon, and for the spirit of him who felt so much for us that he died in our place. Deep is the guilt of handling the word of God in an unfilling manner. The souls of all preachers should be awakened by the stirring appeal of Richard Baxter. Quote, How few ministers preach with all their might, or speak about everlasting joy or torment in such a manner as to make men believe that they are in great sadness. It would make a man's heart ache to see a company of dead and drowning sinners sit under a minister and not have a word that is like to quicken or awaken them. To think with ourselves, oh, if these sinners were but convinced and awakened, they might yet be converted and live. But alas, we speak so drowsily or gently, 
the sleepy sinners cannot hear. The blow falls so light that hard-hearted persons cannot feel it. Most ministers will not so much as put out their voice and stir up themselves to an earnest utterance. But if they do speak out loud and earnestly, how few answer it with earnestness of manner. And then the voice does but little good. The people will take it for but mere bawling when the manner does not correspond. It would grieve me what excellent doctrine some ministers have in hand and let it die in their hands for want of close and lively application. What fit manner they have for convincing sinners, and how little they make of it, and what a deal of good it might do if it were sent home, and yet they cannot or will not do it. Oh, sirs, how plain, how close and earnestly should we deliver a message of such a nature as ours is. When the everlasting life or death of men is concerned in it, methinks we are nowhere so wanting as in this seriousness. There is nothing more unsuitable to such a business than to be slight and dull. What? Speak coldly for God and for men's salvation. Can we believe that our people must be converted or condemned, and yet we speak in a drowsy tone? In the name of God, brethren, labor to awaken your hearts before you come and when you are in the work, that you may be fit to awaken the hearts of sinners. Remember that they must be awakened, or damned, and a sleepy preacher will hardly awaken them. In each sermon we ought to deliver the message of God as if it were the last time we were to preach. It may be the last one for him. It may be the last one for some of his hearers. It probably will be the last one to some of them. The thought should stir up the whole heart. Oh, how we should preach in view of it. How earnestly we should preach, since we are sure that we shall not often stand before exactly the same audience to warn and exhort them. It should be with us always as it was with Cecil on his dying bed. Knowing he was about to die, he expressed a desire to live longer. He was asked, Why? That I might preach Christ. But you have done this through your ministry. But, oh, he said, I would do it stronger, much stronger than ever. We should not be afraid of enthusiasm here. Enthusiasm is surely excusable when life and death and the souls of men and the glory of the Son of God are at stake. The apostles were enthusiasts in their preaching. Hear the enthusiasm of Paul. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. In the preaching of the awfully solemn things of religion, it's a proper field for enthusiasm. It should be cherished here, and anything less should be considered cold-heartedness. A consuming zeal is needed in this age of worldliness and shallowness in religion, and at this time when the hearts of men are so desperately callous. The great preachers who have made their mark upon their age have been in the highest sense enthusiasts. Richard Sheridan used to say, I often go to hear Roland Hill because his ideas come red hot from the heart. John Mason was asked what he thought was the forte of Thomas Chalmers. After a moment's consideration, he replied, His blood earnestness. The biography of Richard Baxter says, quote, In preaching, Baxter's heart burned within him. And while he was speaking, a live coal from the altar fired his sermons with terrific fervor. Into the pulpit he brought all the energies and sympathies of his entire nature. He had a large mind, 
an acute intellect, a melting heart, a holy soul, a kindling eye, and a moving voice. And he called on all that was within him to aid him in his preaching. Being deeply earnest himself, he wished his hearers to be earnest. Himself being a burning light, he wished to flash a hallowed fire into the hearts of others. He seems never to have studied the action or the start theatric. The only teacher that gave him lessons in action and attitude was feeling, real genuine, holy feeling, and has taught him how to look, how to move, how to speak. In preaching as well as everything religious, he believed with Paul that it was good to be always zealously affected, and consequently that earnest, fervent preaching is truly apostolic. There is great force in the remarks of Olin. Success in religion depends on zeal. Fervor. Cold preaching never does any good. Cold prayers are not answered. Cold efforts effect nothing. On the contrary, the simplest ministry of God's truth is fervent, is powerful. A fervent people are always prosperous. Their deep sympathies melt the hardest heart. God's most honored instrumentality is such a people. Preaching and people together burning with the love of Christ and of souls constitute a favored instrumentality. This is irresistible. It makes a word irresistible through the Spirit. Number two, preaching should be with tenderness. A large part of the audience to which we preach consists of persons over whom is resting the sentence of condemnation to eternal death. They are all sufferers. At the same time, they are our fellow beings, our kindred, men, flesh of our flesh, they have the same nature, feelings, susceptibilities, hopes, and fears with ourselves. For their deliverance from all the miseries and dangers of sin did Christ die as well as for ours, and that because his heart was moved with deep pity for us all. Their souls are at stake in the message we deliver them from the lips of God. It will prove the savor of life and the life or of death and a death to them. A dry, cold, unfeeling delivery of that message to turn them would be cruel heartlessness. We should feel for them in our inmost souls, and let that feeling influence every tone and every word we utter. Our tenderness should be like that of the apostles who could write, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted to you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail. For laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children. Why did God appoint men rather than angels to be his ambassadors to a lost world? He might have sent angels, or he might have conveyed the truth to each soul in a miraculous manner, or he might have used other methods, but he chose men to be the heralds of mercy to their fellow men. Wasn't this because they could feel for those who were sinners like themselves, as no other creature could? Because they could speak from experience when they pressed home God's gracious offers, because they could interest them as those who had the same wants and longings, because of that deep sympathy which binds them in a common brotherhood. 
And because God has made this arrangement, we should ever proclaim his messages with a warmest sympathy toward our kindred according to the flesh. There is something in affectionate tenderness that goes directly to the heart and calls forth its responsive kindness. It awakens attention, convinces that the speaker is sincere in his appeals, breaks down opposition of the mind to the truth, and touches sympathetic chords which thrill out from speaker to hearer. As he weeps or smiles or hopes or fears or is filled with awe, so they also are moved and their hearts warm with his. This tenderness will melt them when neither arguments nor threatenings nor warnings nor invitations nor anything else would have any effect. This is a way to get at the hearts of the audience and hold them and influence them by the grand motives that are furnished in the gospel. To speak in an unfilling manner is sure to repel the hearers and close up their hearts. It leaves the impression that the speaker is not sincere in what he utters. It sets men to finding faults and objections to the discourse. It positively hardens and renders a mind insensible to what appears to it the merest platitude. Either these are the effects of heartless preaching, or it is not listened to at all. But men turn from it as if religion were of little account. To deliver to men the messages of God in which life and death are at stake, in an unfeeling manner, is as cruel as it is sinful. The nature of the message we bear, the identity of our interests with those of our fellow men, the consciousness of our own many imperfections and the suffering condition of our hearers, all demand that we should preach to them in a most tender manner. With great truth and force has this thought been presented by an able writer, quote, there is something in an affectionate statement of gospel truth which is peculiarly calculated to find its way to the heart. Christianity is a religion of sympathy. It is founded on the principle of human wretchedness. It meets man in every species of sorrow and affliction. It takes him by the hand when deserted by human supports. It pierces the clouds which throw a melancholy gloom over the path of life and opens before the wayworn traveler a hope full of immortality. Let us reflect upon this peculiarity of our holy religion and consider what an advantage it gives us in our public addresses. By far the greater part of our congregation is suffering in one way or another. We cannot enter a family and be permitted to know what is passing within it without perceiving that there is a worm corroding the root of their comforts, some poisoned arrow drinking up their spirits, some intolerable burden subduing their strength. To such how suitable is the invitation of the compassionate Savior. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How appropriate is the character of the great high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. To such, how adapted are the consolations of the Spirit, the promises of the gospel, and the resting place of the saints. To overlook such circumstances, and to discuss abstract truths in a cold and formal and heartless manner. Oh, what a loss of opportunity! What a mockery of human misery! What a dereliction of duty! What a prostration of office! What a fearful responsibility! Let us pray for the heart of a shepherd, for bowels of compassion. Let us take the sufferer by the hand and conduct him to the Savior. Let us lead him to the wells of salvation. 
Let us pour the healing balm into his bleeding heart and assure him that there is one who sympathizes with his sorrows and who is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him. The experience of all really successful ministers agrees with this. We may talk, says Asahel Nettleton, of the best means of doing good. But, after all, the greatest difficulty lies in doing it in a proper spirit, speaking the truth in love, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I have known anxious sinners drop the subject of religion in consequence of a preacher addressing them in an angry tone. I was never fit, says Edward Payson, to say a word to a sinner except when I had a broken heart myself. When I was subdued and melted into tenderness, and felt as though I had just received pardon to my own soul, and when my heart was full of tenderness and pity,